Yeager earned his master's degree in professional writing from the University of Southern California by writing a thesis on beer. He holds a double bachelor's degree in religious studies and Russian from the University of California at Santa Barbara, which his publisher tells us is a college renowned for its beer consumption. His first book is Red, White, and Brew, an American Beer Odyssey. Thank you for joining me, Brian. Thank you very much. Brian, tell us about the first time ever you drank beer. First time ever was uh, actually by accident. (laughs) I was sitting in my family's living room and just watching TV. And we had a little mini bar fridge in the living room. And I went into it and, you know, that's where we kept all the soda. So I pulled out a shiny can. It happened to be a silver can. And I thought, if all these other things are soda, this must be too. But uh, keep in mind, this was around 1984. And the Coors Company had a brand new product on the market. It was called Coors Light. And uh, my dad bought a six-pack, put it in the fridge. Unbeknownst to me, that's what I opened. And uh, I can tell you, even at the tender age of 10, it was not my favorite beer. But that was my first. Now, um, when you uh, started drinking beer, uh, in was this in college? Was it, or was it before well, right. college? So, so uh, it was uh, quite a, a, a fair amount of time between that uh, first experience and than when I started drinking it on purpose. But uh, yeah, you know, obviously drinking age in this country is 21, but believe it or not, a few college kids find ways to uh, procure beer. And uh, so I, at first, you know, that was my the beginning of my beer drinking career. And like a lot of college kids, it was all about quantity, not quality. When did that equation change? That equation changed for me when I was fortunate enough to study abroad in Russia As you know, I was a Russian major, and I was living and studying abroad. And it wasn't that Russian beers were all that good, but because it is, you know, part of Europe, they had access to a lot of other interesting European beers. So when I had German beers and Czech beers and a lot of strange, strong ales from around Scandinavia, I had really developed an affinity for those bold, flavorful beers. So when I came back, I was, you know, that was it. There was no more going back to the the weaker swill. I wonder how many times you've been asked why you embarked on this odyssey. A lot, is it? Or... I, I, a lot, but uh, I certainly I, I expect that question, and I have a pretty straightforward answer. I love beer, and I love road tripping, and I just thought, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Why don't I, why don't I drive around the country visiting craft breweries and, and getting to know the people who are responsible for them? Well, it seems like an obvious thing to do to me. I, I, it's not a question that I need answering for me. It's not to, what, what a natural idea. Now, tell us about designing the tour. You were, you were raised, born and raised in Southern California. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, so being from Los Angeles, you would think that because it is the second biggest city in the country, it must have a pretty good beer culture. Wrong. There, there's really nothing to speak of in L.A. There's a few new ones popping up around L.A., nothing really in the city just yet. And even uh, one story that I kind of squeeze into the book, in the early 90s, uh, Anheuser-Busch and the very popular chef Wolfgang Puck collaborated to start a brew pub, and even that tanked. And uh, really, <laughs> exactly. You would think can't miss, you know, perfect on paper, but LA was just never a really good beer town. So part of me wanted to go out and explore where the good beer towns are. And obviously, in this day and age, uh, you really can find it everywhere. But that I wanted to 
to find it where it comes from, so to speak. Now, tell us about the, the first place you visited. This is a GG, DG Yingling, Yingling? Yingling. Yingling, okay. And <laughs> they're in, uh, not surprisingly, Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Exactly. That's a small Appalachian town right in coal mine and country. And the reason I started the book there is it is America's oldest brewery. A lot of people on the East Coast are familiar with it. They're very familiar with it because it has such a large market share along the Atlantic seaboard. But guess what? You cannot find it anywhere else in the rest of the country. Could you tell me why that is? That's really surprising to me. I mean, what? The, how hard is it to put that stuff on a train and send it <laughs> over here? It sounds good to me. Well, uh, you know, you're right. And unfortunately, that was sort of what wrecked the beer industry initially when some of the larger breweries said, hey, now that we have these refrigerated cars and trucks, uh, you know, we have railroad cars, why don't we start taking over other people's markets? So they did start shipping their beer around and sort of watering down the uh, the playing field, as it were. Yingling decided, uh, you know, a long time ago, they are essentially a family-owned company. Uh, the owner today, his name is Dick Yingling Jr. It was his great-great-grandfather who founded it back in 1829, and even though they're in 11 states today, uh, they really have no intention of, of taking over the whole country or shipping it around. They want to be strong in their local market rather than sort of weak in every market. Now, th- this has been in business for a long time, and this brings up a, a question uh, for me. I mean, how, how did these guys survive prohibition? Well, they did what a lot of other breweries did during those what I call the you know dark 14 years. But uh, they made non-alcoholic beer, they made soda pop, and they opened up a dairy. And in fact, you could have gotten Yingling ice cream well after Prohibition, but uh, unfortunately, that part of the family business didn't survive, but thank God the brewery did. Well, tell us a little bit about um, their... They survived Prohibition. They not only survived Prohibition, they were ready for the end, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> they exactly. Uh, you know, it was at first, in when, when Prohibition began with the 18th Amendment, and all these breweries thought, well, that's strange. How could you vote to go dry? But, uh, of course, there were pockets of, of dryness, pockets of Prohibition around the country, even before 1919. But... Essentially, they thought, well, this is going to go away. So they stayed in business and wanted to keep their employees going by doing something, you know, making ice, making soda pop, making soda water. And as the years dragged on, they probably were beginning to think it may never come back. But fortunately, a few breweries did stick around making things other than beer, at least According to the, <laughs> according to Uncle Sam, they you know that's what they were doing, and uh, and so when the news started spreading that the Twenty First Amendment was going to repeal prohibition, a lot of these breweries, you know, this is really during the thick of the Great Depression, they thought this is great, we're going to be able to put people back to work. So they did start brewing the beer, and the story with Yingling is that the day Roosevelt. Uh, sign, or ra- you know, rather the day that it became law, a truckload of Yingling showed up at the White House for him to enjoy. Uh, tell us a little bit about the kinds of beer that Yingling makes now, and and how do they relate from what they used to make? They really don't make that many different styles of beer. Their bestseller is their lager, which ironically wasn't one of the original beers that they brewed, even though they're a German family, uh, because in 1829. Lager hadn't even really been invented. 
everyone thinks that all these German brewmasters who came over from the old country to the new world brought lager with them, but it really wasn't until the mid-19th century. So today, lager is their best-selling beer, but uh, you could get Yingling's Premium, you could get a Black and Tan, they do a Porter, and a Chesterfield, Lord Chesterfield Ale, which is one of my favorites from them. Your your next stop was in Portland, Maine, and there you learned the story um, of Alan Eames. So tell us about Alan Eames and DJ Geary Brewing. Uh, it's uh, DL Geary Brewing Company is uh, interesting because they're the oldest microbrewery in New England, and they incorporated in 1983. They didn't really start brewing and packaging until '86, and really there there were a couple people who were instrumental in in suggesting to David and his wife Karen Geary to start the microbrewery and one of them was a local publican uh who this guy who owned a bar called Three Dollar Dewey's his name was Alan Eames and he really became this very important beer historian and he was nicknamed the Indiana Jones of beer because he went around exploring the roots and uh, he was sort of an archaeological uh, proponent of beer and beer history. Uh, they, though they have a, a going commerce, getting the money to start up a brewery back in 83 wasn't easy, was it? No, it certainly wasn't easy. Uh, they had been turned down by <laughs> more friends, family, and associates than you could imagine, probably turned down by a lot of banks as well, uh, especially because you have to keep in mind during that era, the whole concept of a microbrewery was almost unheard of. Uh, today, people you know, see these great, delicious craft beers wherever they go. And one of the real things that, that kick-started the, the success of it was Samuel Adams and his uh, radio and television spots. But this was even before Sam Adams sort of kicked down the door to, to good craft beer even though today, of course, uh, or rather I should say back in that day, David Geary and Jim Cook, who is the founder of Sam Adams, are friends, he, he just didn't have that uh, foundation that we, ha- that we have today for people who already know and seek out these interesting beers. Now, as you're driving across the country, you, you just presumably just graduated from college. From grad school, yes. From grad school, yes. So, I mean... I mean um, no visible means of support. <laughs> not, to, not to put too fine a point upon it. Uh, this is not. How did you afford such a trip? Tell us a little bit about the logistics of, of a, a cross cross country beer odyssey. Because hey, we all want to go on one. <laughs> it, it, you know, it was a two pronged system that I used. One is I really was working a full time job. Mm, it was okay. uh, I was working at a small university in L.A. and the the main benefit of that is that it came with vacation time. So I used all my vacation time. And that fact, I used some unpaid vacation time. So that's how I really had the the bank account to start this. Uh, and I was going to, I was still in grad school at the time. And that's when I really wanted to, you know, I just, maybe if I had thought better about it, I wouldn't have done it. But I, I had the idea and uh, I just said, I'm going to go out and do it. And so that's, one way. The other thing is, while I was actually on the trip, you know, people say, oh, you must have had a, a publishing house that gave you a 
a huge advance or that you expense accounted all these uh, things. None of that. I, I am fortunate enough that I have friends who live around the country. So wherever possible, I had a couch to crash on or maybe a friend of a friend. If that wasn't available, maybe there was a cheap hostel. And if that wasn't available, I would um, just basically put the, the seat of my car back and camp out wherever I happened to be, whether it was a, a rest stop or a, next to a, a railroad, you know, a train track, whatever it might have been. If I got tired, that's where I slept. stop was in Kalamazoo. And one of the things you remind us of in this episode that was that it wasn't always legal to beer, brew beer at home. That was the, the greatest accomplishment of the Carter administration. A- absolutely. There, you know, there are presidents who usually down the road, people or, or history view them unfavorably. Sometimes current presidents are viewed unfavorably. But the fact is, if you really want to take an administration for, you know, for everything that it accomplished, you could always find one golden nugget. Uh, with the Nixon administration, it was the Clean Air and Water Acts. And with the Carter administration, it was the Cranston Act, legalizing home brewing in 1979. Well, tell us about uh, Bell's Brewery in Comstock. It's in two places, Comstock. And um, you also remind us here about uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon, which actually never won a blue ribbon, did it? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> And the way I work that in is, uh, af- well, two, two ways. Uh, Pabst sort of has this this panache, this, uh, this great aura within the brewing world that both brewers and, uh, and beer fans who maybe don't want to spend the money on a, a more expensive six-pack of, of craft beer enjoy. And so I, I thought for this trip, I have to go... I had to go through Milwaukee anyway, which is where I drove after uh, Kalamazoo. But th- one of the things that I discovered there, obviously, the the brewery is not in Milwaukee, or I should say, an operable, an operating brewery isn't there. The old uh, huge monolithic brewery that used to make Pabst is still hovering over the city of Milwaukee. It's it was shut down. I want to say ninety four. I'd have to look it up but uh it has so it hasn't been operating in a while 94 95 but it it really holds a place in the pantheon of of great american beers and of course one of the things that i set out to find are is who are the people who are making our beer today and how really do they differ from the beer barons of old so you i had wanted to take a look at who was captain frederick pabst 
So that way I could really get a sense of what makes people like Larry Bell at Bell's Brewing in Kalamazoo so different. Well, what is it that makes him different? One of the things that I that I say is that the beer barons of old all pretty much had a similar story. They they set out to you know find uh, fame and fortune in the new world, and they brought their knowledge of how to brew their traditional Germanic beer with them, and then through you know through good acumen or good luck they were successful and they all started brewing a million barrels of beer or more but they were doing it making nearly identical you know macro industrial lagers and uh, for the most part they're all gone as a result of prohibition and the consolidation within the brewing industry through that through the 1950s and 60s and 70s when they were all merging and acquiring one another so Pabst does still exist today and in fact if you are able to find some of those old nostalgia brands like Schlitz or Rainier they're actually owned by Pabst uh, but but they're not doing anything altogether interesting it's really more like I said for the sake of nostalgia we're having an economy or a value brand out on the market whereas a brewery like Bell's they are unique in that they bottle about 20 maybe even more different beers very few breweries make that many different styles and they're all really good and they're all so incredibly different from each other from uber hoppy bitter ipas to exceptionally dark roasty malty stouts and porters uh they just really run the entire beer gamut and a few interesting things in between they do a a cherry stout uh, they do a cream stout. They, they, you know, they just play around with different things, and that's one of the things that I love seeing, and I think a lot of beer fans love seeing in the breweries that they support. Now, uh, you went uh, next to uh, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, uh, where you met Thomas Jake Leinenkugel. Good pronunciation. Perfect <laughs> pronunciation. <laughs> uh, tell us about Leinenkugel beer, and uh, it's another old one, isn't it? It is. That's another, you know, one of those breweries that was around long before Prohibition, and it, it's still around today. And to, uh, the the current president, his nickname is Jake, he is also sort of like Dick Ewing. He is the current president, his grandson of the founder, Jacob Leinenkugel, who set up shop in Chippewa Falls in 1867. But one of the things that is different is unlike Yingling, which is completely uh, family owned and operated, Line and Kugel back in 1988 actually sold the company to Miller. So they are sort of in the Miller portfolio, or as I should say, they're in the uh, Miller Coors portfolio. Because unlike uh, InBev, which very famously bought out, or as they're calling it now, merged with Anheuser Busch, it was a little quieter. But Miller and Coors merged earlier. And so this is a, just an example of what happened to some of those companies that are still around. Line and Kugel is making, you know, pretty interesting beers, but they're doing it under the, the umbrella of their parent company, which is Miller. But there are still Line and Kugels who live and run, who live in and run the company from Chippewa Falls. So, so being beamed up into the Miller fold hasn't turned them deeply evil? No, you know, there are so many different ways to, to view this, and that's really why I wanted to go to this uh, wide variety of breweries. I didn't want to show just one kind, and people have said, 
oh, so you only went to microbreweries. And I thought, well, I, no, I, it's not just these, you know, little mom and pop operations. Of course, they're in there too. I wanted to find breweries that were big, like Line and Kugels and Yingling and New Belgium. And I wanted to find small ones. And I wanted to find ones that were, you know, dotting the landscape all around the country. So this is just one example of, of one of the companies that is responsible for putting beer either in our fridge or on tap, things like that, you know, and, and, and of course at ballparks and quickly know. down our throats. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, speaking of dotting the landscape, uh, you talk about free state brewing in Kansas. Um, and Kansas was famous for having prohibition before prohibition. Oh yeah. First state <laughs> to enact prohibition. Yeah. They, you know, they have, uh, their own set of, of laws slash morals. I mean, they're obviously uh, inextricably linked uh, for a lot of people who live there, both for good and bad. Now, uh, this is not a, a, a brewery, so to speak. It's a brew pub. And tell us a little bit about the history of brew pubs. And, and um, you also mentioned something here that I didn't know about, New Albion Brewery. They're oh, brewery. yeah. So tell me about this whole brew pub in New Albion. All right. Well, sure. Uh, so New Albion... Uh, started in here in, in Northern California uh, by a man named Jack McAuliffe. I want to say the year was 1976. And unfortunately, it only lasted three years. But it was around long enough to create this spark. Uh, one of the things that I like to do is sort of relate it to the band The Velvet Underground and how... Uh, Lou Reed said, you know, we didn't sell, we only sold maybe 50,000 albums, but everyone who bought it went out and got a guitar and started a band. That's sort of what New Albion was to the brewing world. It was the first craft brewery in America, and from it, you know, a, a thousand uh, springs. So one of them is this guy, uh, Chuck Magrill, who lives in Lawrence, Kansas, and he was always involved in uh, in 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 eco-minded, sociologically minded businesses. He he managed a food co-op, and he was also uh, into beer. So it just so happened that he had his his ear to the track, so to speak, and was keeping tabs on what was going on way 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 out west in California with breweries like New Albion, New, breweries like Triple Rock in, in Brewery, and of course, Anchor Seam in, in San Francisco. And so he thought, you know what? That's got to be the wave of the future. So that is what he started doing in, in Lawrence, you know, when, uh, when it was very, when it, when it was not a popular thing to be doing there. Now, um, could you talk about uh, the... The legalities of, of brew pubs. There's a, I mean, there was a big to do about this in the UK recently. And um, could you talk about the the legalities of them here? You know, brewing and, and serving in the same place. Is that? It, yeah, it it actually is different from state to state. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people who I met with were the people who had petitioned their state legislatures to change the laws post prohibition to allow them to either operate to open and operate a brewery that packaged or a brew pub that sold beer on premise. And that really is the definition of a brew pub if you sell most of your beer on premise or maybe to go in growlers. 
uh, these you know half gallon jars. Yeah, tell us about the growlers. I thought I love that term. <laughs> That's a really interesting term. You brought that up into uh, somewhere down here. So. Oh yeah. It, well, uh, so after you know a few states down the road from Lawrence, Kansas, I was in Victor, Idaho, at the Grand Teton Brewing Company, which actually began as the Otto Brothers Brewing Company, mm-hmm. just uh, just uh, east of the Idaho state line in Jackson, Wyoming. And it was so-called because Charlie and his brother Ernie Otto had started it. Unfortunately, Ernie actually just passed away at a very young age. But uh, so he had Grand Grand Teton Brewing Company, so-called because it's in the shadow of the Teton Mountains. And his dad was out and said, you know what you need, son? You need one of those growlers. And his son Charlie said, what's a growler? So he explained how back in his father's day, Kids were sent down to the tavern, to the saloon, to bring home a pail, you know, like a bucket of beer. And uh, today, you know, we would sort of laugh at that idea. You think, who would send their young kids down to the saloon to bring dad home a bucket of beer? But that's how it was done in those days. And so he, Charlie, invented, you know, you could say reinvented this package, this container that are very popular at brew pubs today, but it, he was the first person to do it. It literally is a glass 64 ounce jug that you could seal up and put any kind of delicious beer in there you want, take it home, refill it, reuse it. And back when he did that, it, you know, it was both uh, a way to expand his business and allow beer sales to go farther than they previously had, but also a way to, to conserve, you know, to protect the environment by, making this container reusable rather than people tossing it or or recycling it. also get to the Widmer Brothers in Portland, Oregon. And this brings in something that's of the moment because they got that from a family named the Ponzi's. Oh, yes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, No no relation relation. to the famous Ponzi that we're hearing so much about now, no? Exactly. Uh, And in in Oregon, you still have Ponzi vineyards. uh, And it was a couple who had also started you know, it's sort of a matter of dispute, but uh, for history's sake, we'll say that the Ponzi's started Oregon's first brewery, which is Bridgeport, and they really only beat Widmer Brothers to to market by 
a month or two. So it's all, you know, sort of with, you know, uh, nanoseconds here and there. But they but Bridgeport has been sold off and Widmer Brothers are still running their brewery today. Literally, Kurt and Rob Widmer, they were homebrewers. They thought, what if we take our passion? What if we take our our avocation and turn it into a vocation. And today they're doing very well for themselves. Now, they make something called a wheat beer. And could you explain what a wheat beer is and why it has maybe a wider appeal than most beer? Sure. Well, you know, traditionally, beer should have only four ingredients, malted barley, hops, yeast, and water. Uh, And that is, you know, as dictated by the Reinheitsgebot, the Bavarian Beer Purity Law 1516, But uh, even then, they amended that to allow wheat, malted wheat. And one of the things that that does is it sort of gives it a a softer flavor, uh, maybe even sweetens it up a little bit. So the Widmer Brothers weren't the first American brewery to offer a wheat beer, but they were the first to offer Hefeweizen, which really just comes from German words, Hefe and Weizen, meaning uh, yeast and wheat. And so it's usually an unfiltered beer. In fact, Hefeweizen is always unfiltered, and it it makes it cloudy. If you have a German style, it's going to taste a little bit more of bananas and cloves. They started a ger- an American-style Hefeweizen, which doesn't have that same fruity quality, but it's still a very delicious beer and one that some people who think they're not really big beer fans, once they taste that, they say, you know what, that does taste pretty good, and it's sort of their entree into the world of of good and unique beers. Now, while you're traveling across the country, were you taking notes and and writing this book kind of like a a (laughs) journal? (laughs) Uh, You know, I I was doing all the above, really, but uh, it's funny because when I look back at my notes, I'm I'm sitting down with these brewery owners, and I always said to them, wherever you want to meet, if you want to meet at your house, at your office, maybe at a a favorite bar in town, and uh, so really they... You know, everyone picked one of the above. The the interviews that, that were conducted over a few pints, and you asked about my notes, definitely started off a little clearer than they ended up by interviews end. Um, one of the most interesting to me was Electric Brewery in, in Bisbee, Arizona. And, and this Dave Harvin, it sounds like a real character. Could you talk about him? <laughs> he is. I mean, absolutely. You know, again, I wanted to find out who the different beer people are. Who are these very different people responsible for making our beer? Because unlike the beer barons, I knew that today's brewery owners didn't really fit a mold. And while that is true for everyone, it couldn't be more true than for Electric Dave who started Electric Brewing Company in Bisbee, Arizona in 1988. On the one hand, he obviously had him, had it together enough to, to petition the state legislature to change the laws, but he is not really a role model per se. He is someone who um, really, really enjoys his product and, and a few others uh, that uh, I, I shouldn't get into too much, but... Let's just say where some of the other people who I met with were a little more conservative, a little more straight-laced. Some of them were even in the Marines. This guy is actually a convicted felon. and uh, But very sweet and a whole lot of fun to hang out with for a night or longer. I, I imagine you mentioned that, that his probation officer is his former dealer. <laughs> yeah, you know, 
it's one of these border towns, you know, everywhere in the, in America, in a sense, we've it, all these different cultures have been homogenized by chains and big box stores and national television and radio programs that that d- will basically homogenize our culture. But uh, on the other hand, certain parts of the country are are immune to that, are are outside of that in Bisbee and a lot of the border towns that I've been to really, you know, right on the U.S.-Mexican border are like that. And there is a very strong underground economy, shall we say, uh, that uh, that you couldn't do in, in your larger cities. So he is a part of that, and I, I suspect a lot of people in that town are a part of that. So uh, it just makes everyone in town very unique and a lot of fun. Speaking of unique, there's exactly one brewery that has survived Katrina in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. that You know, whereas uh, Bisbee and Electric Brewing Company was certainly, for me, one of the more fun chapters to, to research, shall we say, uh, the one in New Orleans was personally a, a very sentimental one just because I love that city. I think it's a great American city, and I've enjoyed going there before Katrina and I certainly go all the time. I've been many times since then, but it really had a devastating effect on both the city physically and the people emotionally. And so I wanted to include the Dixie Brewing Company, which is not a microbrewery. It's not a craft brewery. It's really one of those old regionals. In fact, they just celebrated their their uh, centennial anniversary. It was founded in 19... 19- seven so uh, back in 2007 turned 100 but the current owners uh, Joe and Kendra Bruno they really poured their heart and soul into saving it years ago decades ago when they bought it and they were really gearing up for their own retirement but after Katrina they said you know what we need to bring it back to life and unfortunately the brewery is was first <laughs> destroyed by the floodwaters of Katrina and then immediately thereafter destroyed furthermore by looters who really had an elaborate system for taking out all the copper and other equipment there. It was just painful to stand in that place and see what had become of it. But uh, but I'm telling you, the Brunos are all heart and they are going to see that brewery back in New Orleans. It's curr- the beer is currently being contract brewed out of Wisconsin but uh, they're great. And what I like about them is they are actually sort of training. They're preparing their granddaughter to take it over. I liked uh, finding these breweries that want to keep it in the family. So ideally, Dixie will remain in the hands of the Bruno family for a long time. And speaking of all in the family, you've got All Text Lexington Brewery Company, which was uh, sort of <laughs> grad present. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> here, here you go, son. Well, congratulations. Uh, you know, some people, some parents give their kids a car. Sometimes they give them a backpacking trip through Europe. Dr. Pierce Lines gave his son a brewery. And uh, the whole reason is when his son graduated, he said, Dad, what should I do? And his father who happened to have PhDs in malting and brewing, uh, said, why don't you go into the brewing business like I had started out in? And the reason, the way he started out brewing, is he was born in a town called Dundalk, Ireland, which is where the Harp Lager Brewery is. And he was sort of a gopher. He was a glorified gopher at the Harp Brewery. And then as he got older, he went to school and you know started working at the Dublin Brewery, of course, uh, at the Dublin Brewery. I mean, at, at Guinness, 
So he had this great foundation. And when he asked, how do I move up in the ranks? They said, no, no, you know, you don't do that. Basically, they were implying it was a boys club, a lads club. And so he set out to show them. And he that's when he got his PhDs in brewing and malting and distilling. So by the time he became sort of better trained than the people who are already making the beer at Guinness. And they said, hey, come on back. He said, no, I'm going to go uh, do my own thing. And so he left Ireland, went to America, arrived in Kentucky of all places. And rather than initially trying to, to work at a brewery or start his own brewery, he had this idea to go around to distilleries and sort of be a, a troubleshooter, as it were. But because the distilling tradition in the South was already really good, there wasn't a whole lot of need for him. So anyway, so, so there he is, and he's in Kentucky, and he thought, all right, I'm not going to, to make my fortune working for distilleries. And he, long story short, he devised this uh, product that was biofeed, yeast-derived food stuffs, <laughs> is the best way I could put it, for farm animals. You know, obviously... Uh, Kentucky is thoroughbred country. So these products were are today it's a multinational, multi-billion dollar industry called Alltech that makes food products and and nutrients for both animals and people. And when when his son said, "What hey dad, hey pop, what should I do?" that's when he discovered that this little brewery in Lexington was going under and with his considerable wealth he he basically bought the brewery and uh one of the things that i love most about this brewery is they because they're in lexington which is where the bourbon road is they have access to these great used bourbon barrels by law you could only use those oak barrels one time so rather than these distilleries losing all that money they then sell them to breweries like the lexington brewing company and they pour their regular ale into the, they pour the ale into the barrel, and out comes this rich, amazing, delightful beer called Bourbon Barrel Beer, and it's honestly one of my favorites. But unfortunately, you could only find it in Kentucky. Oh damn! I wanted yeah. to try some. I think I'll order it, some up. It's 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 a pricey product, but uh, it's one of my favorite Bourbon Barrel aged beers. Unfor- uh, rather, I should say, interestingly. Uh, a lot of other breweries around the country are sort of hip to this and are finding ways to to buy bourbon, spent bourbon barrels. And you could actually find other beers like it, but none like the one that I found in Kentucky. Now, I have to ask about Dogfish Head mm-hmm. in Delaware. Um, they're run by a, an Italian family, Sam uh, Calig- Caligioni. Caligioni. Uh, and they're kind of unusual, aren't they? They are. I wanted to finish the book with the Dogfish Head Brewing Company because they are at the forefront of, of what has been dubbed the extreme beer movement, so to speak. <laughs> extreme beer. Extreme How could beer. it get any better than extreme beer? Yeah, it's not that you, you know, drink this beer as you're tearing it up on the slopes or mountain biking off of cliffs or anything like that. But the reason it got that term is because they are really pushing the envelope when it comes to what beer is. As I mentioned earlier, the Ron Heitzkeboat said beer should only be barley hops yeast and water and maybe wheat breweries like dogfish head say you know what Uh uh-uh that that's old school we could do so much more so they throw in all sorts of 
herbs, spices, fruits, interesting ingredients from around the world. Literally, they they source ingredients like cloudberries from the Arctic Circle or ginger from Australia. Uh, they have uh, a huge barrel made from a tree. I believe it's uh, well, c- certainly some South American country. Uh, and they are just doing phenomenal things. And these beers come out tasting very different from what, you know, our fathers and our grandfathers drank. Uh, so ones like Russian River here in California, Avery is a, and a good example of these breweries. Uh, they're based in Colorado. Uh, Jolly Pumpkin is one up in Michigan. There's just, there's really no end to what beer could be. And that's why I wanted to finish the book there to show not just where beer came from, but really where it's going as well. And one of the things that I liked is that uh, the Caligiones have two very young kids who, you know what, let's just see where they are in, in 20 or 30 years and if they have any interest in turning that into yet another family-owned, multi-generational brewery. Now, having completed your trip, you had a, a pile of uh, beer-stained <laughs> <laughs> notes. Uh, could you oh, talk yeah. about putting the book together? Yeah, you know, it, it, it really was a long and, dare I say, arduous process. But uh, certainly when you're writing a book about beer, I never lost sight of the fact that it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to go and travel and to meet these interesting characters and to, to work on it. So... While I did have to find a way to organize those notes, some more legible and and clear than others, uh, that's exactly what I did. And I had, of course, hours of interview on tape that I had to transcribe, and I'm not the best at that. But I just stuck with it because I, I I knew it was a lot of fun for me to work on, and I had hoped that it would be fun for other people to read once I sort of shrunk it down to 250 or so pages and uh luckily that has been the case i've been having a lot of fun you know talking to people about it and getting some really good feedback from people who are both already diehards in the beer community and some who are you know like me when i started out on this odyssey new to the table now um when you finished the book did you have an agent going into this whole trip or or did that come afterwards no i'll tell you i i almost feel guilty when i say this uh it was all very quick i had one professor at grad school who was a a big fan of of this idea of the project a big proponent and had had said you know you really need to start shopping your book you need to take that proposal that you did in class and send it out because you're going to of course get 50 rejections anyway so why not start the process now and I thought all right I'll you know break the ice here and before I knew it I I had a a book deal in front of me (laughs) wow I've been speaking with Brian Yeager his new book is Red White and Brew an American Beer Odyssey thank you for joining me Brian thank you very much
steady your heart, my friend. With fortitude, long-lasting, enduring hope, inhale the early dawn like a ship off coast that comes for you. Spent and ragged and beggared, if what you do and how you live does not feed the fire in your heart and blossom into poems, then leave, quit, do not turn back. Move fast away from that which would mold your gift. Break it, disrespect it, kill it. Guard it, nurture it. Take your full-flung honorable heart and plunge it into the fire, into the stars, into the trees, into the hearts of others. Sorrow and love and restore the dream by writing of it again, writing of it again, discovering its wild beauty. Jimmy Santiago Baca, reading from his collection, Healing Earthquakes. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I was interested in a phrase in one of your biographies about translating rage and dispossession, and I just loved what that what that was what that what that sounded like and i'm wondering when you speak now to kids when you speak in prisons and you see that you see that same rage and that dispossession what do you tell them or do you just move right into the poetry is that does that say what you want it to say i i don't really know what i'm going to tell anybody when i go see them uh I get a real sense of, uh, I get a sense from them. So almost everything that I do when I meet whoever I meet in whatever institution or otherwise, it's always different. But um, uh, everybody suffers from dispossession. Everybody suffers from loss or whatever. It's just all different. Everyone, basically, basically, you know, we're all given sort of like, we're given Lincoln logs, but a lot of the logs are missing. And so no one really has a home, convict or priest, bishop or whore. And what we all learn eventually is that we all have to play together with our Lincoln logs, and that way we can create one big home. And we're learning that, you know? So some people get mad and walk off. Other people want to own all the logs. Nobody wants to share. But everybody learns. There's only one way of doing this, and that's to share the dispossessed now possess and the lonely now feel crowded in by so much stimulation and the poor feel rich. A lot of things can happen once you break down the barriers that separate people. Poetry's good at that. Well, um, this is a related question, I guess. I'm wondering about the evolutionary arc of your work, how you see your early stuff versus what you're writing now. And and I'm wondering if, if you dip back a lot when you're talking to people and or if it's if it's just all there all the time I'm, I'm thinking as an artist you know artists move forward right that art keeps going but do you ever dip back into okay you know yeah I know where you are and here's what I said about it mm, no never never dip back I'm not a dipper <laughs> I don't dip I, I uh, everything I do, I try to take on as a. I like, I like to, I like to do things. Um, I just finished this big. I just finished a novel, and it'll be made into a movie, and it's coming out late spring, called Nopal, and uh, 
My next project is a musical. I want to do a musical, and it's going to be a great story. I've got the story, and I'm writing the lyrics now. And uh, I've never done a musical. I've done movies. I've done all sorts of other things. But uh, So it's going to be cool. But I don't ever look back. I just keep going forward. I like to try things I haven't done. So the musical will be really cool. Well, yeah, you, you screenwriter, right? You've got um, Bound for Honor, produced in 1993, poet, novelist, memoirist. Do you have a, I mean, is, is the musical your focus now? Do you, do you keep doing everything at one time? Do you, are your creative juices kind of concentrated somewhere? Well, they were for the last five years. I mean, I'm really, really glad I did it. I can't, I can't be thankful enough to the deities that control the muse, but... This is for Nepal. Yeah. She was, uh, it, she was amazing. God, what an incredible woman. She took me to the border, and I, and, I, and I went into this crazy, incredible world of the farm worker. And uh, I must have, uh, you know, I went over it a few times. But, yeah, it's, uh, it was a good, it was a really good, it was probably the most miserable five years of my life. But they were also probably the best. What made it so miserable? Um, the war in Iraq and the Bush administration. So not speaking of your creative process, but speaking of the larger scene. Yeah, but it's odd. It's odd because uh, the people in London at the Bloomsbury and the people in New York at the New York Times and everywhere, everyone's calling it a masterpiece. Uh, and it's still not even published yet, but it's odd that that uh, that some writers in the worst of times write total mediocrity crap, and other writers write their best work. And in the best of times, some writers write their best work, and others write the most mediocre work. Mm-hmm. I just happen to be one of those writers, I think, that under the worst of times, I write my best work. Mm-hmm. It makes it kind of miserable, but it's, it's good. It's what it keeps me alive. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of Nopal? This is, it's the same old story of why, I mean, for everybody, just uh, the American dream and uh, a couple coming here. A woman and a man, and they come, and they, they, don't, they don't come together. They meet each other here, and they're field workers, and they start a family. And I wanted to track what it was like to have that family and to have that dream and to be Mexicans and all that, and to have Chicano kids, you know, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Kind of explore it. I mean, you know, you were, you were, t- actually, tell me first, you were in prison for how long? At what age? Uh, 21 years. 
That's how old you were, right? And you were. I started. I started when I was five, and I ended my my internment when I was twenty-eight. So how many how many years is that? About twenty-one years. Five. Yeah, they have prisons for little people. Help me. They have. They have. They have prisons for little people. What 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 was that? Oh, I know what that prison was. Centers. They have orphanages. Uh -huh. They yeah. have reformatories. They have all kinds of jails for little people. Yeah. They just take a little person when he grows up and puts them into a big person prison. Five to thirteen was the orphanage, huh? Something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure when, but yeah. Do you ever have survivor's guilt? What? Do you ever have uh, survivor's guilt? You know, you made a decision. You know, you you, you came out of prison and became a writer and became crazy successful and you know you made that you made that choice and you took you took that road but there's all those people that something. took a darker road let me tell you something what few people know is that I turned Oprah down to go on her show because she wouldn't bring on the kids I was teaching to learn how to read and write what few people understand is that I refused to be packaged in New York so they could make me into this great Chicano writer I refused to have publicists and agents wrap me up and sell me I refused to be part of that whole Hollywood thing after I did the, the movie. I left it, and I went on to become really successful and full in life and wholesome in soul and pleased emotionally and stimulated mentally and imbued culturally with all over, people from all over the world. It's such a gorgeous, wonderful, incredible journey. I just refused. You're not gonna, I'm not gonna play your game in society. I'm not gonna do it. So you can call me and say, what a total I am for not taking advantage of Oprah because you could have sold 20 minutes. I don't want to sell 20 minutes. I just want to live my life the way I want it. And I can't go fishing. I can't go hunting. I can't be with my kids. I can't do if I'm on the Oprah show because everyone and their mother is going to be thinking I'm sort of a heroic, journey, mythic Joseph Campbell character that they want to give talks to, and I don't want that. It's, you know, I just want to, my appeal and my popularity to be spread by word of mouth and so be it so it is it is it's like unbelievable I mean it's I'm charging 15,000 a reading and I'm booked two and a half years three years in advance and it's by people who heard they're like oh yeah I heard from my friend Susan Susan told Phyllis Phyllis and I was like whoa just unbelievable how this word spreads it's just crazy mm -hmm. but it's lovely because you get to go there and it's like people, you just really get to be around people. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I think I've probably met two or three million people, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, my books are on their 16th printings, 16 books in 31 languages, and they just keep on printing them. And I keep paying my mortgage, you know? I, keep, I haven't held a job in 32 years. I make quite a bit of money and I take care of a lot of people. I do what I want. I wake up when I want, I go to sleep when I want, I date who I want, I cook what I want. I'm not sure what else I could want. I think God's given me everything I could possibly want. I mean, I hope I don't get sick and I hope the people I love don't get sick. I just spent 50,000 two weeks ago to save a woman's house. I was free to do that. They, they were taking her home away and I, and I gave her 50 grand. And I guess I could have used it to buy a new Mercedes, but I gave it to her 
And, and there wasn't even a word shared between us. I just gave it to her and looked in her eyes and said, this is for you. And she looked at me and I could tell, I just want a whole lot of brownie points in heaven. I could tell that she was, I could tell it was this thing that transcends language. She just said, thank you. And I said, don't even mention it, you know, it's what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, it's funny because I don't even think about the value of money. All I think about is that she can sleep in her bedroom, you know, cook at her stove again. They were going to come take it from her, and I was like, what? It's the, mother, it's the house her mother gave her, you know? You can't do this. This is like, this is one of those inviolable things you can't cross, you know? You can't come and take this woman's house. So on my own, I just woke up. I said, okay, I've got to do three readings really quick, fast. Then I'll hurry it up get the money and bring it back to her, you know? That's what I did. Jimmy Santiago Baca, thank you. <laughs> I don't know what you did for me, but thank you. <laughs>